All right, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for this uh, morning in Washington and evening in the Philippines. Uh, we pray that it can be a blessing for all of us and for those around us as we study your word, as we learn how to interpret it, uh, and then as we apply it to our daily walk and our daily lives. Lord, we pray that we are able to do these things as we abide in the Spirit and that we can do all things to your glory. Uh, we pray for understanding, we pray for peace, and uh, we pray for the love that surpasses, the peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh, Lord, uh, we want to abide in your love. So we ask these things, Lord, in your glorious name. Amen. Amen. All right. So tonight, uh, we are coming to a very important verse in John's argument. Uh, and this is an important verse because uh, it's about the importance of abiding. So up until now, John has been talking about uh, the practical outworking of the Christian's life, uh, how the, the reality of living in the natural body on this earth um, can affect us, but how we ought to remain in the love of Christ, abiding in him so that we have the power to resist evil and to do good in the spirit. Now he's going to talk about the spiritual end of things. So whereas before we talk about what it looks like on the outside of a Christian's life, now we get into the center of it, and we're going to see Jesus Christ used in his example of how the Christian ought to be living. So first we want to remind ourselves of the context. Uh, the context that we're coming into here starts in 1 John 2, verses 28 and 29, which we saw last week. This is the beginning of John's new argument, where he is moving from, uh, from the practical application to the spiritual application. So he says in 1 John 2, 28 through 29, and I'm going to test your memory here and see how well you remember last week. Um, we read, now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So John is going to talk about the importance of abiding in Jesus, because as we abide in him, we are sanctified by him, so that when he appears at the end of this age, either for us in the rapture, or, uh, or if we pass on before the rapture occurs, we will be together with him and we will be made like him. But we don't want to be ashamed at our walk and our ministry here on this earth uh, because we, we have all of the spiritual tools available to us if we rest in the spirit and walk by means of the spirit rather than walking by means of the flesh, which is either legalism or licentiousness. Um, so either um, giving ourselves license to sin is one end of the spectrum that we want to avoid, and uh, entrapping ourselves in the legalism of having to do all the works of the Spirit by means of the flesh, which is really impossible. Uh, and it's, it's uh, not insulting, that's the wrong word, but it's, uh, it uh, scorns the gift of the Spirit that the Lord has given us, that we try to do his works on our own without him. Uh, we say that we give him the glory, but in reality, what we're doing is we're saying, I don't need God. I don't need to rest in the spirit. I can do these good works on my own now that I'm perfect. And uh, 
That's one reason why John starts out his gospel with 1 John 1.8 and 1 John 1.10, saying that whoever thinks that he doesn't sin is lying. Um, if there is a Christian who says, um, I no longer sin because I'm a Christian, this Christian is simply lying. Um, that is not the Christian experience. That is not anything that the Bible tells us to be the Christian experience. It constantly exhorts us not to sin because sin is a daily experience still of Christians. But that does not mean that we should give ourselves permission in that sin. We should not embrace that sin. We should reject it because we have the ability to walk by the Spirit, by means of the Spirit. And so how do we avoid sin? We avoid sin by abiding in Christ. So John is going to give us some very severe verses here about the importance of that abiding. And... Uh, some of the practical consequences as well, if we're not abiding. But he continues and he says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Once you are born of God, you cannot unbecome a child of God. Uh, and it says here, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world rejected Christ, and it will reject those who are born again of Christ. And John uh, makes the claim here that not only he is a child of God, born again by the blood of Christ, but also everyone whom he's speaking to is also part of this children of God, because he says, such we are. He says, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what will be. He says, we are born of God, even though at times it might not look like that. We have the promise of glorification with him. We have the promise of the removal of the presence of sin. Right now, what we are experiencing as we abide in him is the progressive removal of the power of sin. Um, he continues, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. What this is saying is our progressive sanctification will be completed when we see him. Our progressive sanctification is not completed at the moment we become a Christian. We have all of the spiritual tools and all of the spiritual faculties available to us to abide in him, but our sin nature, the old man, has not yet passed away. The new man is born. The old man is crucified. The old man is dead, but we have to live to that truth. The physical body has not yet physically died. Uh, therefore, we are still attached to a measure or in a measure to the ability to access that old man. We're constantly exhorted to live in light of the new man, to live in light of the spiritual truths that have been rendered on our behalf, not to live for the old man, not to live as a seed of Adam, but instead to live as a seed of Christ. And he says, everyone who has this hope, this hope of the future perfection of the Christian, uh, fixed on him, on Jesus, he purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. So that is, as we abide in this hope, as we rest in the promises of Christ, that our sin natures will be stripped away, this hope of what we will be in the future has a purifying effect on us, that we are progressively stripped from the clutches of sin, 
So now we come to our verses tonight, um, and it's important to have that context before we get here, because often these verses are taken out of context and made to mean something that they do not mean. So we continue, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. This is, uh, this is the corollary verse to uh, chapter 2, verse 29, that says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So this is saying when you see someone who is acting righteously, righteousness can only come from God. So we can know for sure that this person is born of God because they are demonstrating uh, characteristics that can only be true of a Christian. This does not mean that someone who is not demonstrating righteousness is not born of God. We cannot make John's uh, what John doesn't say here be the primary takeaway. We can't even say for sure that that is true. In fact, because of other verses, for example, or 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, we can know for certain that that is not what John is saying here because that would not be true. Uh, Christians who do not demonstrate righteousness are not abiding in Christ, but that does not mean that they have not been born again, that they have not been justified, because that is the work of Christ, um, not the, uh, not the uh, necessity of the Christian to abide. Uh, justification is done at the moment of faith, not after successful abiding. So this is saying, this is how we can recognize a Christian who is abiding in Christ. We come to verse 4 of chapter 3, and we see the opposite, um, but it is not um, a 50-50 here. It's not one or the other. It's here's one extreme, and here's the other extreme. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So he's saying when sin is present, be it in a Christian or a non-Christian, then that is lawlessness. He continues, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Jesus Christ's purpose was to take away sins. That is both the penalty of our sin, but also the power of sin over us and eventually the presence of sin. And in him, there is no sin. Now, John always uses this, uh, this phrase, in him, not to mean our eternal security in him, but always to mean our fellowship in him. So he says, Jesus Christ has taken away sin. When we are in fellowship with Christ, there is no sin. Our fellowship with Christ happens when we are not sinning. When we sin, this breaks fellowship with Christ. It does not put our eternal salvation in peril. Our eternal salvation is finished and secured at the moment of faith, but our sin will break our perfect fellowship with Christ. So we see now, after John has made it clear in the first two chapters that we are saved, that we are born again through faith alone in Christ, now he says essentially the same argument that Paul has in Romans chapter 6. He says, but sin is still heinous. Sin is still egregious. And sin does not have to be part of the Christian experience. When we are abiding in Christ, there is no presence of sin. So he says, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. 
So this is the verse that is often taken uh, to try to uh, show that people who sin by nature are not Christians. That is not only ignorant of, of the Christian's experience and dangerous because you either have to be so depressed as a Christian thinking that you are not saved because you experience sin, or you have to be so self-deluded as to think that you do not experience sin even while you are sinning. So that again, we have to go back to uh, to 1 John 1, 8. Is that this one? No, we'll get to that. Uh, let's uh, remind ourselves a bit here of the context. Um, we're going to get to 1 John 1, 8. Uh, so we're going to follow John's train of thought here once again and make sure we understand what's going on in these... Uh, in this set of eight verses. So in 28 and 29 of chapter two, uh, this is a quote from Dennis Roxer. He, he summarizes these chunks of, of verses. He says, Jesus is our standard in 28 and 29. That's the standard of the perfect man that we, we seek to be like. And as we rest in him, we, we are able to, to be like him. We reflect our abiding fellowship by appearing like him. When we are seen as resting in him and his righteousness shines through us, that can be proof positive that we are abiding in Christ. And we can only abide in Christ if we are already saved by Christ. An unsaved person cannot abide in Christ, um, but a saved person, it is possible for them not to abide in Christ. So manifesting practical righteousness since Jesus Christ is righteousness. So this is the physical outworking of righteousness that happens because we have Christ's righteousness, but it only happens if we are abiding in him. Um, I've heard the example used of a lamp. A lamp does not cease to be a lamp if it is unplugged, but when we abide in Christ, the lamp is plugged in. Uh, we have access to the light of Christ that will shine through us. It doesn't come from us, but goes through us like the electricity in a lamp. In uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we see that purifying themselves, John's audience, with the hope of his appearing um, and being like Christ, because Christ is pure, so resting in that hope, and that purifies us, the hope of what we will one day become. So here in 4 to 6, we see that living victoriously over sin by abiding in Christ since Christ came to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So this is a picture of victorious living. Uh, this is not a test for salvation. See, Janet says, the others said that the Holy Spirit is a force. Any thoughts about that? Which one said the Holy Spirit's a force? As, uh, other people said that the Holy Spirit, because you mentioned about the, the switch or the lamp, right? If we yeah. are not going to the uh, to switch or to plug, it will not, you know, have a light. So other have, uh, it's it, 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 uh, it's not metaphor, but they are, they they said that the that the work of the Holy Spirit is a force. So not not by you know. Uh, love or you know for example if you if you do something godly or righteously or kindness for example 
that means that the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, encourage you or like you switch from, you know, I don't know how to how to explain it, but you know, I hope you, you get my point about, you know, that the Holy Spirit is the force. So anything, is that the Holy Spirit is the force? Uh, the Holy Spirit is a person. It is a person of the three Earth? parts or the three of the uh, triune God. So he is spoken of with a specific personhood. Um, however, there is no good works apart from the Spirit. The Spirit is the power unto good works uh, for the Christian, that uh, having the indwelling of the Spirit for all Christians is, uh, I guess that could even be the, the lamp plugged in, um, but until the lamp is turned on, there's no light, uh, and that's the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit when that lamp is turned on, and the tools of the Spirit are rendered to us, uh, are active within us. Uh, that is turning on the lamp. And uh, the Holy Spirit can't function properly within us when we resist him. Um, so that is resting in the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ. Uh, then that is, in a sense, the power, the force unto good works and the force unto uh, avoiding evil which are things that we are incapable of doing on our own without resting in the spirit. Uh, but simply having the spirit abiding in us does not automatically render that. We have to yield to the spirit in order for those tools to be functioning. Uh, okay, so looking back a little further then at some more context where John is talking about the practical outworking of obedience. Um, so we go back to the beginning of chapter two. This is immediately after uh, we hear about the Christians who continue to sin, uh, that it's a lie to say that we don't sin. But when we sin, we can confess that sin, and Jesus is perfectly just and righteous to forgive us that sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then in uh, chapter two, verses one and two, we see that he is our high priest. He is our advocate in heaven. He is the propitiation or the substitution um, for our sins, that uh, he can cleanse us justly of those sins uh, by means of his blood. So in uh, verse 3, then, in chapter 2, we read, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So we can be sure of our abiding in him, of knowing him intimately and personally, uh, when we are keeping his commandments, because keeping his commandments is only possible when we are abiding in him. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So this is saying there will be false uh, professors saying that they are abiding in him or else saying that they are saved when they have never truly believed in him. Uh, and so there is that option then that some might lie about abiding in his truth and abiding in his commandments. Uh, and so we can see not whether or not they are saved, but whether or not they are abiding by whether or not they keep his commandments. There are two options then. It can be one who is saved, but is not abiding. And thus those uh, commandments will not be shown through or else it is one who has never believed in Christ, uh, never believed in Christ's power to take away their sins. Uh, and thus that one would never have been saved and so cannot manifest uh, obedience 
because the spirit does not live in them. Uh, but simply because the spirit lives in us does not mean that we automatically obey. Uh, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. So the love of God does exist. The love of God even goes towards those who are unsaved. God loves the whole world, and for that reason he came and died for the world. But the love of God is perfected in the one not who simply believes. That love is going to be perfected at the time of Christ's return. But the love of God is perfected in the sense that not only has it brought to their account eternal security, but it also has a practical outworking in their life. That it's not just love in its bare minimum, uh, where it's love of God towards man, but man does not return that love. But the love instigates love within that man. Remember when we talked about the difference between human love and God love, where only God love can be manifested uh, through God? Uh, we cannot manifest the love of God on our own. But it says we love because he first loved us. That is the love of the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit are a package deal. We get them all or we get them none. And we get them all when we are abiding in, in the Spirit, not when the Spirit indwells us, but when we are filled by the Spirit. So when this love is perfected, not just the love that will save us from, from uh, eternal hellfire, but the love that is reflected back towards God by the filling of the Holy Spirit as we abide in him and love is perfected in us. Um, by this, we know that we are in him. And remember, John uses in him to talk about our intimate fellowship with him. The one who says he abides in him, again, that word abide, the Greek word meno, which means to stay, not to be removed, not to remove oneself. This is to abide. Uh, the one who abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Christ did not walk in his own power, but he walked in the power of the Spirit uh, as the, uh, and preached the message that God had given him. And he says this in John 17 of the Gospel of John. Um, he talks about that he has not come on his own behalf, but on behalf of God. So we continue in the practical outworking of obedience, reminding ourselves what we learned uh, a little more than a month ago. We read, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother, is in darkness until now. The command of Christ was to love one another and to love God with all of our hearts, all of our minds, and all of our souls. So this is the practical outworking of obedience. When the love of God is working in us, not uh, existing on our behalf to bring us to eternal salvation, but actually having a manifesting uh, function within us. That practical love manifests in obedience. So he finishes here. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
Now, again, there are two possibilities for this. For the Christian, it is not possible 100% of the time. Uh, actually, let me say that a different way. It is not possible when we are not abiding in Christ to avoid uh, this kind of sin because not abiding in Christ cuts us off from manifesting the love of Christ. The love of Christ is accessed through abiding, and that love of Christ is practically manifested in love towards others. So when we are cut off from fellowship with Christ by sin, when we are not abiding in him, we have either the self-delusion of perfection to think that we are loving, to think that we are not hating, even despite the fact that we are. Uh, I think I've encountered this recently where someone has, uh, has deluded themselves to such an extent that they think that they are not sinning anymore. They think that they are perfected by the indwelling of the Spirit. Um, and the experience that they had first, um, they took an experiential moment, not, not Jesus Christ at his word, um, but rather they waited until they felt an experience of salvation. Uh, and this caused them to think that from that moment forward, they have not experienced sin, that they have not experienced hate. And uh, the disturbing part of this is that that experience took place about 10 years ago. So they have deluded themselves into thinking that for the past 10 years, they have never had hate in their hearts. Unfortunately, uh, in, in sharing biblical truth with this person, this person manifested not love towards me, but hatred. Uh, only she has deluded herself into thinking that the, uh, the rudeness, the vitriol, uh, that she has shared towards me is not hatred. Uh, this is unfortunate that she, she has deluded herself into an unbiblical truth um, and so uh, is blind to the sin that she is propagating uh, in her body and in her works. And this isn't going to affect her salvation, but this will affect her walk and it will affect her rewards in heaven. Um, so if you think about it, please... Uh, please pray for her. Uh, no, that person does not believe that her salvation uh, will be lost. Um, I do worry about it. And that's, that's the other side of it. There is the person who will self-delude themselves and call the sin that they are doing. They will say that it is not sin. Uh, they have blinded themselves into thinking that they have not sinned. Uh, so that's why we want to look here. Let me jump to that one. First uh, John 1, 8. Uh, through 10. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this is the scary one here. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So this is, this is one possibility that the Christian who is not abiding in Christ might delude themselves into thinking that they have no sin, that sin is not part of the Christian experience. And they'll use all kinds of verses to try to prove this, but they'll have to use them all out of context. And they'll have to use atrocious logic to try to leap and bound themselves into deluding themselves of this falsity, uh, of this falsehood. 
But the other end of this is that the person is honest with themselves and they recognize that sin is part of their experience. But if they have believed that sin cannot be present in the Christian, then they have basically set themselves up to fail on the other end of the spectrum, becoming so depressed, realizing the truth of the sin in them, um, but thinking that that sin excludes them from salvation. That sin excludes them from uh, from intimate fellowship with Christ, but it does not exclude them from fellowship. Both of these um, cause a Christian to falter in their walk, um, to exclude themselves from the fellowship with Christ that brings the power of good works, that brings the power of avoiding sin, so that the one who, who believes wrong something about um, eternal security will find it very hard to actually walk in fellowship with Christ. They will either think that they are the most perfect manifestation of this perfection while they leave a, a line of destruction behind them, or else uh, they will become so depressed uh, that they are um, unable to walk uh, together with Christ in the spiritual abilities that he has given him. So the, the remedy of this is to walk by means of the Spirit, to trust God, to trust his promises, to know that our salvation is absolutely secure from the moment of faith, but that continued faith, continued rest, helps to, to bring about this practical manifestation of righteousness, that as we continue in faith, continue in this, uh, the proper object of faith, then we abide in Christ. And as we rest and as we yield and let the spirit uh, work and will within us, rather than making ourselves work and will for fear of possibly losing our salvation, that is when righteousness can be practically manifested in us. So here in Galatians 5 verses 16 and on, we read, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. In other words, the flesh is allergic to grace. And the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. The flesh and the spirit do not coexist peacefully or harmoniously. And this flesh is talking about it's uh, the Greek word sarkos. Sarkikos is the carnal Christian, the one who is walking by means of the flesh, not walking by means of the spirit. That doesn't mean walking uh, licentiously. That could mean walking legalistically because both seek to use the power of the flesh to overcome sin rather than seeking to rest in the spirit and let the spirit overcome sin. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. When you are walking by means of the flesh, it is impossible for you to do the things of the spirit. And that is Paul's argument in Romans 7. Uh, that the things that he wants to do, he cannot do, and the things that he does not want to do, um, he feels powerless against. Uh, but he says, um, after saying, wretched man that I am, he says, but thanks be to God, because he has rendered certain truths on my behalf, despite my experience, so that when I rest in those experiences, this is Romans 8, when he rests in those experiences, the practical uh, manifestation of those truths occur in his body. These fruits of the Spirit are those practical manifestations. When we are walking by means of the Spirit, when we are abiding in Christ, when we are resting in the Spirit, 
This is the experience, the practical experience of all Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit. We read, but the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We have been made alive by these spiritual truths. Let us also walk in these spiritual truths that are rendered on our behalf. <clears throat> the walk of the Christian is progressively experienced in the progressive removal of the power of sin, and that progress happens when we see the end goal. Uh, when I was learning to drive, I had kind of a hard time staying in my lane, and my mom told me to look 300 yards ahead. She said, look at the end of the road, not the road right in front of you. You'll see the goal post and you'll stay in line. Um, and it works. Uh, when I drive, I don't have a problem trying to look 10 feet in front of me and stay in the lines. You want to look at the far end. You want to look at the goal. Uh, and that keeps you in line. And that's the idea here with keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ and the perfection that is coming to us uh, when we are face to face with him. That hope purifies us. It keeps us in the spirit. It keeps us in abiding in Christ. So in Philippians, uh, Paul writes, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is looking forward to the return of Christ. Our perfection will occur at that time. And until then, there is a progressive sanctification as we rest and abide in him, because this is the ideal uh, Christian, the one who abides and is progressively sanctified. And he continues, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So we do have a necessity for discernment, but that discernment is not a discernment of legalism. That is when we abide in him and abide in his love, um, he leads us into all truths. And this is not divorced from staying in his word. Uh, his word is a love letter to us, but it also is practical in the sense that we can come to understand him and to know him better through his revealed word. This is also not divorced from prayer. We want to be in intimate, personal communication with God through the spirit. Uh, it says that we have access to the throne room of heaven uh, through our position in Christ. So finally, we read, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. We are filled with the fruit of righteousness as we abide in him and abide in the hope of his coming. Uh, John 15, 4 through 5. Uh, we won't read this again. We've read this many times. Uh, this is Jesus Christ telling his disciples that they should rest in him because he is the vine and we are the branches. Uh, and we remember the, the imagery of the Holy Spirit being the sap which produces fruit, that Jesus Christ has sent the helper, um, and that helper is the power to do good and the power to avoid uh, sin. And uh, remember, John's book is not a guide to see if you are saved. John's book is a guide to see if you are in fellowship with Christ. Are we in fellowship? 
Are we abiding in Christ? Are we resting in him? Sadly, if we take this book to, to mean, are we saved? Uh, we come up with a lot of untenable conclusions, conclusions that do not practically work in the life of the Christian. And in fact, in fact, it will lead us out of fellowship with Christ when we question constantly and continuously whether or not his work is complete. Uh, we will live in fear, not live in love. Um, so we want to understand John's purpose, which he gave to us right at the beginning of this book. This is not written to a mixed crowd of some believers and some not to test whether or not you're saved. This is written to a crowd of believers. This is written to those whose justification has been made final and complete. And it's a book of deep intimacy within the Christian body, of repulsion towards sin, but repulsion towards sin in the life of the Christian, so that the Christian may avoid sin by understanding his tools available to him in the Spirit, resting in the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, so that uh, the Spirit has free will and free reign within the body of the Christian. Uh, if we take this to mean something else, we actually cut ourselves off from those spiritual tools. Uh, so this is our last verse tonight. Uh, the importance of intimacy and fellowship with God. This is the conclusion that John is working towards here, that he's beginning in chapter three, and he's going to conclude in chapter four. Uh, he says, beloved, let us love one another. Remember, that is the law of Christ. That is the commandment given to us during this uh, dispensation of the church. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God, and knows God. This knowing comes up in our verse 6 of chapter 3. This is an intimate knowledge. This does not mean knowing a fact, which is the Greek word edu, but this is the, uh, the Greek word genosko, which means to intimately know, to personally know someone or something. But it isn't even just genosko, it is epigenosko, to get inside this knowledge of Christ, to be in the in crowd of spiritual living together with Jesus um, by physically manifesting the love which has happened to us, um, reflecting that back towards him by abiding in him and letting him do the work uh, of, uh, of sanctification in us. So he continues, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is not saying the one who does not love is not born again. This is saying the one who does not love has cut himself off from fellowship with God, has not allowed the spirit to work in him. Um, it has nothing to do with whether or not the person is saved. It has all to do with whether or not the person is resting in Christ. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So not only has Christ come to take away the sin of the unbelieving world so that when they believe, they are rendered born again, but it has also come for the very practical purpose of those who are saved, those who are Christ's, it has not left us without the tools and without the power to live a Christ-like life. There are two facets to Christ's dying on the cross for our sins. It saves us from eternal punishment when we have believed in him, but it has the practical manifestation within the Christian who abides in Christ through faith to progressively deliver him from the power of sin. Uh, in this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, again, the substitute 
for our sins, that he has taken away the penalty of our sins. Now let us go and live in that truth, uh, practically manifesting, uh, practically manifesting what God has rendered final on our behalf, so that we can be even today uh, moving towards that goalpost of the perfection that we'll, we will be when Christ returns. Uh, so to conclude here, I'll finish with our three tenses of salvation, just as a reminder. Uh, we did this a couple months ago, so I think it's important to re remind ourselves that we are removed from sin's penalty by nature of the cross. At the cross, our penalty, our, our due payment for sin is taken away. It is paid by Christ. That is final. That is taken care of at the moment of faith. Jesus Christ has died for us on the cross. Sin as having any penalty against us in the book of life is paid for. Uh, our, present, uh, our present experience here is the progressive removal of the power of sin. This is rendered to us as we abide in the vine. As we abide in Christ, sin's power is diminished in us that as we become the slaves of righteousness rather than slaves to sin, uh, we grow and we, we uh, bear the fruits of the Spirit by means of the Spirit. But we have this promise of the removal of the very presence of sin, and that will be our experience when Christ returns for us, that we will be made perfect. And if you look in... Uh, in Revelation 21 and 22, we will see that uh, the tree of life is returned to our presence when sin is removed. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were removed from the garden, no longer having access to the tree of life. When the tree of life is again uh, a present and physical reality for us, the presence of sin will have once again been put away forever, uh, never coming back to uh, to lead away the sons of God. So with that, uh, we finish tonight's lesson. And uh, next week, we will look forward to 1 John 3, 7 through 9, maybe 7 through 10. It depends on, the, on where the natural break in the text is. All right, Janet, can I ask you to close us in prayer? And let's remember to pray for Lisa's daughter again. for Charlie and uh, she just got a uh, vaccine today. Okay. Good. Okay. Um, Father God, Lord, thank you so much once again for having this opportunity to study the word. And dear God, I pray for the listeners uh, right now that you can um, uh, work in their hearts with their God to seek you, to know the truth um, that uh, we are uh, your children, we are abiding in you. And then uh, we can um, uh, manifest the Holy Spirit to to impart your word to the other people of their God. Lord, uh, thank you so much for our uh, Bible teacher, uh, Dane, and thank you for Lisa. And I pray for Lisa's daughter of their God. Lord, I pray that she will be come back to have a fellowship with you. Um, and please, Lord, uh, guide her that uh, her path would be towards you, dear God, and to know you. And dear God, I pray for all the believers, dear God, that 
to walk in the light of you. Lord, thank you so much in all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Wow, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you so much, Lane. Yeah. Thank you. Good night. See you guys next week.